To this is hardcore podcast. You just heard Out for Justice for the Fallen View off the coming record Nothing to Prove this October on Days. So you heard Momentum, the track is Overkill, off their debut self-titled LP. The pre-orders go up today. You can go to the website www.daze-style.com. That's Daze. For those of you who don't know, Lumpy, Sanction, Out for Justice, this motherfucker has been on fire with releases and unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, I couldn't drop the Alfred Justice track last week. So I wanted to double up this week. Alfred Justice is the fucking bomb. This track is a killer. Uh, really excited for this record. And um, that comes out next month. You can check out this record and pre-order it today. Momentum and Overkill. When I think of people who I'd like to put into an episode my thought was maybe shit this out to you guys and maybe you guys give me some feedback here especially with this being a questions episode that we're gonna do do you think I should have an episode where it's like an hour of lumpy just talking about days and what he does with the label and then maybe do an hour with Carter just talking about from the from within front I mean these are two labels that have consistently given us great tracks great bands and I'd like to celebrate them and, 
you know, get their story out there. And uh, let's hear what you have to say. But, um, yeah, check out them tracks. Thank you so much. Also, today, get your fucking ticket for Keystone Hardcore Jam. When we think about the kind of stuff that I like to put on, it's always these kind of things like the Keystone Hardcore Jam. Um, Backtrack to 2014. Chris Mahmood and I got together with Richie Crutch, my brother in arms and all things, podcast, hardcore, you name it. That's my ace. We get together and we create this thing called the Trinity where the three of us bond up. We put a show together. We did the Keystone Jam. I can't believe it's been (laughs) this March. It'll be eight years since we did our first one. And when we put them together, they've been a lot of fun. All of them have been at Club Reverb in Reading, Pennsylvania. And in 2019, we did the Keystone Hardcore Jam Holiday Edition. Gorilla Biscuits, Shelter, One King Down, Urge Crisis, the whole gamut of bands, you know. And, you know, some fantastic sets from so many people. Strength for a Reason, Payback, one, One-on-One. Well, actually, I think it was Enemy Mind was that show. One-on-One came, yeah, during the pandemic. Uh, Strength had a fucking insane set that year. And so, thinking about during the pandemic, you know, um, we lost Steve Potassio, who was iconically seen in the pit the entire night for every fucking band uh, with a Santa suit on. And it made me think about shows in general and holidays and hardcore. And we're not traditional folks, a lot of these people. Now, granted, since the era of social media, we found out a lot of you motherfuckers live in cul-de-sacs, have giant fucking homes and huge fucking families and come from some insanely supportive backgrounds. And I kind of wonder sometimes, oh, you know, the fuck drives on the hardcore, but there's so many people from so many places that find hardcore. We're not going to gatekeep you. But um, there are a lot of people who come from, whether it's just bad backgrounds or broken families and are attached to our culture. So having a big holiday show, especially in the last couple of years, has become more of a paramount. Now, I, I was doing shows in early December for quite some time, but you know if we get a chance to do a big show in December with the bands that we have... I'm going to fucking do it. And I and I absolutely can't tell you enough about working with Chris and Richie because that's how this shit goes, you know? I get a band, they get a band. And um, one of the few things I actually fucked up and didn't talk about on the show with Bob Wilson is one of the games that he and I play, Max Morton plays, where one of your friends is putting on a fest and they call you like, hey, man, here's what I got. What do you think? And your when your job is if someone like Bob calls me, hey, you know, like, you know, here's what I got so far. You got to start spit firing bands out there. Oh, what about these guys? How come you don't these guys? How come you, you know, like, and it was so much fun to do that with Chris and Richie on this. So, ReverbConcerts.com. Tickets are going to be up. Keystone Hardcore Jam, Saturday, December 11th in Reading, Pennsylvania, the former home of Unisound, a club that hopefully one day we will get the man himself from Reverb, uh, from, um, Unisound on the show, um, legendary PA hardcore venue. This lineup is fucking bananas. Youth of Today, E-Town Concrete, Killing Time. This is the first show Killing Time is playing back. And unless I have my things wrong, this is actually the first time E-Town's going to be playing back. This is the first all-out war show is going to be back. 
This is the first Death Threat show that's going to be back. Um, Rude Awakening hasn't played in fucking years. And in fact, I reached out to those guys and was like, hey, be cool if you guys played. And they were kind of like, yeah, fuck it. This would be awesome. We'll play. You know, like they got it together. Big shout out to Josh Hines and Skull for making that work. Cruel Hands. Can't fucking stop them, guys. They're back. This little band called Shatter Realm. Got them on it. My boys Buried Dreams. Austin. The killer fucking Massachusetts hardcore band. Um, multiple home front chaos. You heard them a couple times talked about on the show. Representing Chicago. New Jersey Shackled. My boy AJ, who I'm going to have an episode up with next couple weeks on this podcast, Face Wreck. Also preserving Underground in Pittsburgh. Dude, this one, this band had an insane set at that Year of the Knife record release, Age of Apocalypse. We had to bring them back. Now, we played these guys on the show, Bushido Code. Uh, They're on tour, pushing this record. Check them guys out. My baby boy, Zach Barone, Pitt Lord of Philadelphia, and um, lead vocalist for Carry by Six, which features my brother Kyle from Lifeless, Chris Mahmood. This is a uh, ghost. I mean, this is a fantastic lineup of dudes in this band. Tony Orlando, who plays guitar and is the powerhouse behind the Shattered Realm edition going down with me. Um, he has this uh, fantastic band that is not unlike Blacklisted. We actually played them and sector together as like a double John on uh, a f- previous episode. They're playing off the tracks. Bob Wilson, his newest band. The name comes from the Freight Train demo off the tracks. D Block, Detroit, new band. Uh, Street Truck, Altoona, PA dudes. Troy, they do the Brick by Brick Festival. Yo, they got some shows coming up next weekend. They got some shows coming up, and we'll talk about that next. And uh, the, the new baby boys on the scene. This band opened for the first Philly Unity Barbecue, Hesitate. And that was in um, 2019. And in 2020, rolled into 21. They came right back, opened that Madball show up at Reverb. Um, now featuring Jack Zabinski. Got a new band. Dude's, dude's a killer on the mic. Check them out with Please Die at the Boyertown uh, gimmick. Out of Phoenixville, rather. They were fucking fantastic. This is a great show. A lot of different bands from different areas. And this is the kind of shit that we love putting on. Talked a long time about this. Get your tickets. Reverb concerts. So, since I am in a band, let's talk about this. We're all going out Friday night to Pittsburgh. It's fucking chaos. Code Orange. Hometown show. This is like the fucking... Insane, crazy graphics, never seen before gimmick. The shit that they try to do live the week or so before the pandemic really hit and they had to cancel it. So then they captivated all of us with the fucking streaming show. The first live streaming show I ever watched in my fucking life. Now they're doing it live. Code, Dying Fetus, The Boys and Girl, Year of the Knife. I don't remember the other bands. Sorry, fuckers. But we're going to be out there representing us and uh, hanging. And then the next day, we play. We actually play in 
Gary, Indiana. <laughs> it's fucking gonna be sick as fuck. Shattered Realm. Uh, this one is Shattered Realm, Raw Life, Sector, Street Struck, MH Chaos, and Bovice. Gary, Indiana. At the D. Hopefully it's not someone's uh, D, literally. But uh, yeah, Saturday, September 25th. We'll be out there. And then uh, for those of you who listen to Terror Zone Podcast, we were asked to play in Detroit. And that's how this whole thing came together. So I called Tony O and I said, hey man, this guy wants to get us in Detroit. Let's make this happen. So Shadow Realm, Raw Life, Sector, Street Truck, Enemy of God, Missing Link, and D-Block at the Sanctuary in Detroit, Michigan. I haven't played these places in quite a bit. And this iteration of Shadow Realm is fantastic. And we'll be talking about that later in the show. But big shout outs. Come check us out. Also, check out Year of the Knife. Year of the Knife is playing some fucking shit, man. I'm telling you. The the crazy thing about this band is they just play shows. And things just come to them. So we get them on a show in Syracuse. And I, you know, for a minute I thought it was going to be the Philly show, Syracuse, we'll see how the summer goes. Next thing you know, they play these sick of it all Death Before Dishonor shows in Rhode Island and Connecticut, and those shows killed. They both sold out. Big shout out to Greg Reason to Fight, DBD, for putting them fuckers on. And then we get linked up with this Code show. So Year of the Knife does that. And then Code has off dates because they do their own show the Friday in Pittsburgh. Then they're playing shows a show with Slipknot because they're on the Slipknot tour. Now, Slipknot takes off Sundays and Mondays. They need to fucking rest, get that pain off their fucking face. And so Code's got some off dates. So Year of the Knife is playing Saturday, 925 at 4D's Lounge in Altoona, PA. And this is a fucking wild lineup. Year of the Knife, Shackled, Hesitate, Fire in the Blood. Big shout out to the Altoona boys for putting this on. And then, like I was saying before, you know, Year of the Knife, they're doing two other shows supporting uh, Code. One in Grand Rapids and one in Columbus. This fucking band's been on fire. So they played the shows in Sick of It All Friday and Saturday. They had the Sick Crew show and they get a phone call. Hey, um, somebody dropped off our tour for a couple days do you want to jump up and do the doc, knock loose shit? So Year of the Knife goes and plays Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Well, that wasn't even planned at the first beginning of the knock loose show, so it's fucking fantastic. Um, while we're at it, congratulations to Bob Wilson. I told you fucking FYA was going to be a killer. Those of you who supported the episode, fuck yeah. Motherfucker sold out in a single day, and he finally came to Daddy. And said, dude, I can't. I know exactly why you moved the show. I can't believe it. People do not understand how mean people get when they can't buy a ticket for a show. And that was the only reason why I ever moved the show from Starlight, when Starlight was still open, to the Electric Factory. I just got tired of people talking shit and be like, fuck you. Can't believe you won't just put it in a bigger room. And so we put it in a bigger room. God bless Bob has a great venue, and he's like, fuck that, I'll keep it in this venue, and if you didn't get tickets, suck a dick, you'll get a ticket next year. And so congratulations to Bob and FYA for going ahead and selling this motherfucker out. Um, Since I'm in kind of like this uh, show mode, I might as well stick with it for the Philly people, as there's a lot of 
Philly people on this shit. Um, the most bum out situation is that Snapcase Earth Crisis Strife gimmick, the East Coast Takeover, is being rescheduled. No longer October 9 and 10. It is now May 14 and 15 in Philadelphia. It might be May 13th and 14th. It's in May. And um, your tickets, if you bought them, because the show sold out, will be honored. Save them. Don't try to get a fucking refund because then, you know, in May, you might still want to go and don't come crying because you fucking sold your ticket and can't get it back. And, and that's the way it is. Unfortunately, with the way shows are, some bands are going to take different precautions. Support the show when it's in May. Disappointing. Tomorrow is some wild shit. Tomorrow, straight up, is um, action news. Action news is Aaron Hurd, Mikey Balfalco, The Triangle, uh, their new band, first show. Chemical Fix, Gel, Savage Mystic, and Bob off the tracks. And uh, they are now playing at the Walmart Beach, which means you drive to Columbus Boulevard in Philadelphia, where Walmart is. You park and you walk across some dirty-ass shit, and there's a show in Illegal Pier tomorrow night in Philadelphia, or tonight, tonight in Philadelphia. So go support that shit, all right? Um, what do we got on the calendar? That fucking Bob. Koyo, the band everybody loves. Webbed Wing, yo, Soulblind. Shout out to Alex Bradley for being the first person to put Soulblind on a Philly hardcore show. Yo, this band's gonna bo- uh, blow up all under heaven. Fantastic band. Um, they're gonna be playing at the Fire. Yeah, Bob's got the Fire back on Gerard Avenue. Check that out. Another news: we are moving the show from. No pressure to the main room, and the show will now be at 6 p.m., not a 2 p.m. matinee, which is big. So with the loss of the Earth Crisis stuff, when I did the Earth Crisis, when I did the Earth Crisis shows, there was also that Sunday show that was going to happen for no pressure. So initially, it was going to be like Earth Crisis Saturday, Sunday morning, or Sunday matinee for no pressure, Sunday night Earth Crisis show again. Now it's just the now it's just the no pressure show on the Sunday. Initially it was going to be at the black box small room. Now it's in the main room. Those three hundred tickets sold out, so you got to go ahead and get yourself aligned. Get yourself some fucking tickets for this thing because that'll probably sell out as well. And then we got a slew of ticket shows that I won't talk about next week. Go to phillyhcshows.com. You want to get up on what we're talking about. You want to be about it. This is where you go to. PhillyHCShows.com. Support at FYAFest.com. Support ThisIsHardcoreFest.com or TIHCFest on Twitter. All right? So you're wondering what the fuck happened last week. Initially, I recorded Patreon episode with questions. And... um. I was trying a different setup with a mic I was actually trying out to potentially use in public. Or not public, but so I could do stuff, multiple people. The mic, I thought, picked up me pretty well. But in the progress of recording, I was losing some parts, which was really fucking frustrating. And then the 
next thing that really sucked was just the overall background sound. And so the mic's ass, I don't want to use it again. And I was trying to edit and clean up, and it was way beyond my capacity. And I did it so far last minute. And on top of it, you know, it was Labor Day weekend. I was away all weekend with my friends in the mountains of New York at Camp Dream, D-R-E-E-M. It was a pretty cool place. And so I record a lot of episodes on the weekend, so it's out. And so the time to get a guest in was hard, especially with the Labor Day, short Labor Day week. So I was going to drop this questions episode. and It just took too fucking long, and it was really fucking hard to make happen. So... I stressed the fuck out and was trying it, and then, again, with the computer, at a certain point, the technical difficulties were mounting. I couldn't get this thing together, and I didn't want to half-ass it, and I can apologize and say, hey, fuck you, I'm sorry, and we're going to play a game that I'm going to call 52 questions. It's not actually going to be 52 questions. I don't know how long this is going to run, but we got hit up with a lot of people in the Instagram stuff, so... I'm just going to run through them. We're going to have a good time on this episode. Uh, Upcoming episodes will include Andy Rice. Thinking about Bob Wilson and the talk of the 2000s into the 2010s, I thought it'd be cool to have someone like Andy who was integral not only in playing in these bands, but becoming the booking agent that put so many of these bands out there on the stage and really put a lot of energy into this time, which directly affects the timeline today. So he's going to be our next guest next week. All right. First question, which is pertinent to a lot of things. Will, this is hardcore happen still or in the future? This is kind of fucked up because what the fuck? Any time after right now is the future, right? So, yeah, the, the hardcore, this hardcore is going to happen in the future and it's still going to happen. Money. Time, resources have to be put towards figuring out, A, are there bands who aren't full-ass bitch acidness and won't sign up to do the show and last-minute pull out, which will then mean that you fuckers who bought tickets will get pissed off and want refunds. Like, again, the co- the, the COVID situation's fucking shot. Shot for everybody. Shop for promoters like me. Shop for ticket buyers like you. Shop for bands like them. You know, you want to play a show. You want to just... Everyone wants to get back to fucking normal. You want to get back to fucking normal. It's pretty fucking simple. Roll the dice if you're able. If you got a friend at home, kid at home, wife, sister, anyone important to you at home that has immunocompromised scenarios... I completely understand why you would not want to potentially be the carrier to bring something to harm one of your loved ones. Don't play shows. Don't go to shows until they really can figure out how to mitigate this. COVID is a motherfucker and it does not play by the rules. And so, barring that, we need bands to carry on, stay confident so the quote-unquote market confidence is built. Everyone wanted to book these shows and open up, and then people were like, oh, maybe someone's going to get mad at me on Twitter if I still play, so let's fucking cancel or let's move the show. Now, that wasn't the case for Earth Crisis, but another show that has nothing to do with me, but it was involved in a venue that I work at, and that's what I'm referencing, so no DM me, oh, who, who was the one? Motherfucker, it's just something that happened, and it's a part of what happens. If you want to have a strong situation, you got to support it. If you say yes to something, stick with it. 
And that includes you fucking bands playing Keystone Hardcore Jam. No backing out, motherfuckers. So I am now currently engaged in locking out what my options are for alternative venues in the case that the electric factory does not work out. It's very hard to find a giant fucking headliner who doesn't then go, since we're playing in a giant room, we need five times what we would normally get paid. And um, honestly, kind of jealous of my boy Bob. He shows up, he kicks ass, he sells out, moving on to the next one. I might want to go back to that, you know? Because right now, minus the pandemic, a lot of people would hit me up, I'll oh, do a great lineup, can't make it this year, I can't, I'll be back next year. This ain't the fucking bus, motherfucker. If you ain't supporting, if you ain't buying tickets, there might not be another one. Now, post-pandemic, there's definitely going to be at least one more. I don't care if it's in the fucking back alley, but I- I- I'll go out with a fucking bang or something, but I'm not going to give up till we at least do one more. But I'd like to find a spot where the Electric Factory and I can work out a deal that we could bring in some bands that make it worth it. And, and there's a lot of moving pieces, especially at this size of the, the factory. So the short answer is yes, there will be a This Is Hardcore. This is a good one. Um, what were your what were your favorite venues besides CC's that always had crazy shows? I mean, fucked up thing about the 90s is, is you see pictures with people with tons of denim and hoodies and all this bullshit. So you assume... Right, you assume that because a show happened, it had to be crazy. There's a lot of shows where people just stood there with their fucking arms closed to bands that later on everyone would change the. Oh, dude, I love this band, motherfucker! You're sitting there with your arms closed, bored as fuck, and you assholes now, fuck you. There's no sitting there with the cell phone. You just had to stare at the band. I was at some shows where a band would be ripping, and the band could see if you turn around and walk outside. So you socially awkward. Fucking cell phone addicted dickheads would have no fucking chance in the 90s. Not because there are so many fights, but because you can't hide behind a fucking computer screen and you couldn't hide on your cell phone in the back of the room. You had to stare at the fucking band that no one was moshing for. So yeah, CC's was dope. The pipeline was the shit. Thursday night shows, insane, wild shit. Actually one of the coolest, not venues, but halls that were put on. And I'd love to have an entire episode based upon this with Tracy McMahon. Tim McMahon's amazing wife and longtime hardcore patron, patron and supporter. The Middlesex County kind of shows were iconic, absolutely fantastic. Um, right at the end of my time, uh, my my really young age, I got to go to see some house shows. One of them was at Josh from Trust Kill Records House. Um, basement shows were popping. Um, I loved the truck because it was from Philadelphia. I liked. My brother, who's dead, who did the Speakeasy Cafe in Upper Darby. Manball, Cold Front, Breakdown, when Breakdown first came back to... Dude, they were fucking fantastic. And that was like, I was... I think I just turned 16 and was at that show. And I thought that shit was the fucking shit. My boy Shane from Poor Life. Rest in peace of Shane. Uh, This is a question and answer episode, so I'm sipping up on this Jocko Go. Unsponsored by them, but I love this motherfucking shit. Um. Yeah, there was tons of venues that had shows. Club One Two One in Brockton was always dope. Long Island had Doctor Shays and you know the Pwac. Oh man, there was just so many cool places. But a lot of them, you know, you you there was a whole activity about, and we talked about it a couple of times. Like you get in the pit, 
you might get in a pit in Long Island and have to deal with those dudes. And, you know, we always try to rep up in the front. You know, there's a lot of different elements. Oh, yo, to tune in in Connecticut. Um, Bristol Skate Park in Connecticut. Ellen Gia in Connecticut. Um, dude, there was a lot of places. Could go on literally for fucking ever. But, yes. Hey, um, I did shout it out. But if you were still not hip to it, at Neanderthal Society. I'm episode four. So... Check that episode out. I rambled emotionlessly. Or so my fault. I man, I rambled very emotional about for three and a half hours with my boy who did this podcast. So if you were like pissed about, hey, where the fuck was this episode? Jump back in that. You can check that one out um, and say this question is thoughts on Sacramento, California. I was in Sacramento, California for the very first time in 1999 with Dysphoria. We showed up and met Mike Hoods at a venue called Bojangles. Skinheads moshing like assholes, hardcore kids, tons of girls. Um, The whole scene went out afterwards to Del Taco. Now imagine this. No fucking cell phones, jerk offs. So think about this. Yeah, everyone links. They go to this place. You're a band from out of town. And you're sitting next to all these new people you just met for the very first time. And you're making friends that would last for 22, 23, 24, 25 years. It's fantastic. Sacramento is one of my favorite places. Um, Mikey Hoods has been fantastic. West Coast, Wattis, uh, West Coast Worldwide. The venue was fantastic. Um, big shout outs to my brothers from Connecticut, um, Sacramento. The Most Hated Skins. Uh, my boy Ezra. Mike Pressure Point, Spanky, all the old guys. I mean, they go on for a list of all the people in Sacramento that I love. One of my favorite cities. Hot as fuck in the summer. Um, original OG, um, Ben, Mario. Dude, best, best place to hang, I thought, at that time. Really loved it. So thank you for the question. Hey, here's a cool question. How's your BJJ training going this year, bro? Mom... I train as much as I physically can. I have a hard job, which doesn't mean that I get a pass on the mats. But specifically this summer, I've been so fucking hot. I come home early, you know, while you dickheads are slaving the 95. I'm off by 2, you know, I'm home 2.30. I'm napping in the ice cold box that's in my house. But uh, I get up and my body's sore. I know it was the cold. I should have been more, eh. I should have been more cognizant and did light stretching or something but I was really hurt my body just in the heat of working in uh, lower level garages where there's no sun but it's impre- oppressively hot and um, where I usually try to train three maybe four times a week and then I was working Saturdays which took out my Saturday training sometimes Saturday just that sleep overnight on Friday you go to jujitsu at 11.30 it's like oh man you get a couple more hours of sleep I fucking missed it, man. I haven't hit a Saturday in so long. I feel like a jerk off because I've been, I've been making work. I've been making money. I've been working on the Saturdays. So um, back in the fold, um, the best thing that happened with jujitsu was that I started taking the master's class. For those listening who do not care about jujitsu, the master's class is for people who are technically 40 and older because that's when they consider you to be elder Masters is the term, you know. That's a man. Like if you were, if you were competing, you're competing at a master's level, meaning you're older. It's a nice way to call them old. And so, it's a bunch of older guys who are fucking hard, man. They're all hard dudes. <laughs> the fucking roles aren't easy. 
me and Hardcore all take so many fucking beatings back there. But just to shift an idea away from these 25 and 20-year-old super strong athletic college kids who come out from wrestling and all these places where even though that they haven't been training as long, just their actual physical abilities are you know deeper or strength in the way that their bodies are, sometimes it's hard. So it's good to have that balance. It's probably one of the best things that happened to me with jiu-jitsu was starting to train with elder people on the Thursday. It's made a difference in how I train. Um, but yeah, my training is still good. It's pretty steady. And um, I train formally at BJJ United. Jarrett Wiener has retired as the head of the school and remains a huge part of the school, but it is now under an ownership of the person who was the the day-to-day guy. Like Jared has a job. He works as a police officer. And for the last couple of years, it's been Tom who's really kept the ship running. Tom has now changed the name. He owns the, he owns the, the school. It's still in Old York Road in Jacobtown. It's still one of the best fucking places for jiu-jitsu in the city in this area. Classes are fucking fantastic. And um, you can find them at, at United GS Arts. United Grappling Striking Arts. And um, I think they're going to truncate to the United Arts. But the fucking school is the same. Just Jarrett needed to step away as owner. So Tom took over. And Tom ran the school. The entire time I've been training since uh, June of 98, Tom was the day-to-day guy. He was the you know the guy behind everything. So he now has ownership of it. And so, yeah. Fucking jiu-jitsu is awesome. Next question. What's the worst injury you've seen or had at your, had yourself at the show? So the worst injury that I've had was that I broke my jaw in December of 1998. And then when my jaw wired, Scott kicked me in the face, in the pit. Or mad ball across your face. Not ironically, not without irony, I should say. And so later on that month, Mahabri's there and our boys are opening the show because there was a snowstorm and the boys are out, nine circles in the pit. Shit's getting crazy. Next thing you know, Beep, I won't say his name, but he's my brother. Gets in some shit with some bros, because bros were already hip to Hapri at the time. And I get into it with them, crack somebody, next thing you know, I'm kicked out with these bros, and my shit gets split open. Ipso facto, my jaw was broke from December 3rd, and then rebroke in January, and so all total, my jaw was wired from December 2nd or 3rd, 1998, until about March, late March, like 26, 1999. I was a skinny kid. Moshing still, drinking forties through a straw, my jaw wired because I was a fucking jerk off. Uh, there was an injury during shadows. Oh no, during overcast out of this article where there was a compound fracture, which basically means a bone breaks the skin. Ugh. Pretty gnarly. This is article two thousand fourteen on the Thursday. That was up there with one of the worst ones, to be honest. Hey, let's shout out a person who's asking some questions because that shit's fucking cool. At Warlock Guitar Cabinets. Dude's making guitar cabinets. Actually, our boy Hoya and him are going to do some custom Hoya rock cabinets, I guess. Um, who was the first parkour band you ever saw and what age? Um, that's a question for the ages. I mean, early 90s, do we count Biohazard? I would say so, but um, the first true hardcore show that was all hardcore that I went to was... Sick of it all. Biohazard, Sheer Terror, at the TLA in 1993. I was 12, turning 13. Um, I was lucky at the time 
to be hanging around with dudes like Dave Coates of Frankfurt, OG, some other old headbangers, and a group of our friends. My mom, who I said a million times, booked at metal clubs, hung out metal bands. The neighborhood was getting shot, like physically shootings. We were getting crazy. Um, I could do a whole podcast on fucking the crazy shit we were doing on our neighborhood. But my mom was basically like, you motherfuckers got to get out of the neighborhood. So we started going down to South Street a lot. We were going up to the Northeast to the cell block when they had the Sunday shows. We were going out all over just getting away from the neighborhood. And um, you go to you go to South Street and you see a fucking flyer that's sick of it all on Biohazard Shirtero. I'm like, this sounds fucking great. But, you know, Biohazard's on the fucking, you know, they're on MTV, Headbangers Ball. You know, the Judgment Night soundtrack's popping. I mean, this is the fucking shit. That was my very first hardcore show. So, shout-outs to Warlock Guitar Cabinets asking a bomb-ass question. Here's a cool one about my regular non-hardcore kind of life. Why concrete out of all trades? Well, right around the time, right before my jaw got wired, I was working on and off with my father and my uncle, who are cabinet makers. I should say that cabinet making at the time was either working in a small garage shop, pretty big, um, adjacent to another uncle of mine who had a giant trucking business um, in the hood of southwest Philadelphia. And so my uncle rented a small space, my uncle David, and um, my uncle David, my uncle Bill, and my father were all cabinet makers. It started with my father, then Billy, my father's oldest brother, and then my Uncle Dave all became cabinet makers with a major in crazy, uh, crazy, crazy, crazy fucking talented woodworker, Ed Hennessy, who had a, uh, a spot on Hope Street forever in the hood. And then they went from Ed to a couple different places and then they end up building cabinets before the Ikea and all this mass manufacturing shit took place in the late 90s and early 2000s. So they were making a lot of stuff. And all these like small factories and big warehouses in Kensington and North Philadelphia. And so in 96, I was old enough to like get a job job. I had a GED. I was about to be a kid or I was about to have a kid. So I get a job as a bowling alley porter. My father was like, you need to just learn how to work with the tools. Like, fuck this. And I had gone a bunch of times and helped my dad and my uncle like literally deliver furniture for like one of the Phillies, because my uncle had a very good salesman who would get these rich people's houses, and they would do giant bedroom sets and armoires and all this crazy shit. And so before I was even 16, I would event, you know help with delivers, you know, like hand the drill, hand the nails, like the little things. And um, I did that, but working with your dad sucks. Anyone who has a dad who works with knows you want to punch him in the fucking mouth. And I already wanted to punch my dad in the mouth when I was fucking outset. So really want to punch, punch this motherfucker. So working with him was kind of hard. And so I did the bowling alley gimmick for a little bit, but it wasn't good money. It was stressing me the fuck out. And um, my dad was like, dude, you got to just come work. So I started working at this place called Tracy, which then led to a couple different things, different jobs. And, you know, again, working with my father and uncle was stressful as fuck. So I kind of had to say, let me go off and do some other shit. My mom, who worked at a bar at the time, Knew a shit ton of these Irish motherfuckers off the boat, all from Northern Ireland, and just complete dickheads. Awesome guys, but dickheads. Hold on. 
And so one day my mom's like, oh, you want to work with these Irish dudes? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, fuck, what are you doing? Like, oh, stucco. So I was 17 turning 18, and I would get picked up before the sun would come up at the 7-Eleven near my house, and I would work till sundown. And I was getting paid $60 cash a week. So I was working Monday to Saturday, rain or shine, for, unless it was like down, down, pouring hard or snowing hard. But these are off-the-boat dudes. They worked hard. And um, I was a stucco laborer, which is basically mixing. The, uh, the big mix, the scratch coats, were 60 shovelfuls of sand, two 80-pound bags of cement, 40-pound, which is half a bag of lime, and I would to run this mixer, put it in the wheelbarrows, run it down, the, and then pull it up buckets all day. I was very in shape at 18. And then when I broke my jaw, I was still working. My jaw broke working with these motherfuckers. And um, it was my first bit of working in masonry. And so from 1999 until 2005, the way that I operated for money was that I would work either with my father and he had side work, or he would be working at a shop. Like, hey, we need a hand, or you on tour? I might work with him. A couple times, I was working at this cool ass place in Bridesburg called Counter Attacks. Um, Ed, um, this was a Mike Akmitsky. He ran the spot on Bridge Street. I think he's dead or going to be dead soon. Motherfucker smoked the entire day, but built a lot of laminate countertops before there was Home Depot, and I used to make countertops, and then um. You know, but like touring, I would just say, hey, Mike, I'm going on tour. And he sometimes he'd be like, nah, fuck you. I don't need you. So this is also another thing that kind of goes away now with the advent of white dudes with construction companies, but just hire day laborers here. When you were 17 or well, 16, 17, 18, 19 in your early 20s, someone's dad or uncle always needed some guy to come work for 50 to 100 bucks a day. Doing construction. You might work for two weeks. You might work for three weeks. Depending on the project. Now these guys pay these guys way cheaper. And they beat the fuck out of these guys. And, like take full advantage of them. And um, kind of sucks. But for a young kid. You know. It was always dialed in the work. So I worked a lot in woodworking. Uh, home building. And masonry. And whatever I was on tour. I was working. And so at a certain point, I got in with a friend who I was just starting back up working at a shop. And he's like, hey, do you want to join the union and work in concrete? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I sure, why not? And he told me how much money, and I was like, holy fuck. And um, I started working in that field. And it was pretty interesting, and I realized the chaos of it was great. Um. I liked working union because, like, we would start at 5 a.m., which means at 1 p.m., you're done working unless they're in overtime. Summertime, that's fucking great. And then, you know, normal times is 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. So, like, yeah, like, I would still stay out late at night. I mean, there was times when I would get to the job and just sleep. I still do that sometimes. Like, if I'm running late with a podcast and the shit's got to come out and I'm fucking editing late. I might just go sleep in my car for two and a half hours on the job so I don't I fucking wake up late and not be there. But um concrete's interesting. Um there's ups and downs, it's physically laborious, but there's a lot of aspects to it. And in the last fifteen years, I've taken different things that I enjoy about what I do at work and I work in different facets. I work in the um oil refineries, I work in power plants, I work in nuclear power. 
I also work in restoration work, which is a lot of saw cutting and chipping and doing all this stuff to try to prevent water from uh, fucking up rebar and then like restoring older stuff outside, you know, aesthetically. But a lot of what I do in some companies is like rip open entire concrete beams, um, clean up and, you know, put chemicals all over the rebars to uh, ferrous guard and protect against rust and then pour concrete back. Really boring, not aesthetically pleasing stuff. I've also poured a shit ton of sidewalks and fucking targets and all this other shit, you know. Uh, one of my favorite jobs was working at Bass Pro in Atlantic City where I was hired from the Union Hall to help shoot the spray concrete that is the big pond with the fish thing. It's probably the coolest job I got out in the Union. Um, I like working physically. I like the routine. Um my life has been chaos from the time I was a child up until now. And getting up and going to work is a form of mental health. Because I, no matter what happens, I still I tell everybody, like, oh, my life's bad? Cool, I still have to get up and work in the morning. And I'll say, oh, no matter what, I still got to pour concrete in the morning. Like, it doesn't matter how bad life is, I still have to get up and go to work. And it's these little things like that. Also, like, pouring concrete with a bunch of maniacs is a lot of fun. Um, I've seen people get beat up in the middle of a concrete pour. I've seen people... Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Ten minutes later, they're hanging out together. Uh, Dan Del Sordo, Cement Mason, who's now retired, who's like a mentor for us. Rule seven, leave it in the concrete, a.k.a. get in a fight with a guy one day. Who cares? Doesn't matter. That was that was last concrete pour. There's some freedom in it. You work for a company, you don't like them. You can tell them to go fuck themselves. Go work somewhere else. kind of like it. My body doesn't like it sometimes, but ultimately it's appealing. I, I And I... I generally feel comfortable doing it. And I, as I rambled on for 10 minutes about concrete, you know I like it. What's going on with Shattered Realm? And can you talk about Shattered Realm and the different times with different singers? Now, I will say that I had been friends with everybody in Shattered Realm and before they were on the band. Eric Cooper who was the singer of Clubber Lang, John Cooper's little brother, was the founding member and bass player. Without Eric Cooper, Shattered Realm would not be a thing, and that needs to be said more often. Eric Cooper got with a dude named Alex. There was Chris Rafalowicz, who was the guitar player at the time. Um, they Chris and Al, the drummer, the original drummer, were in a band called Third Degree. And so, essentially, Eric's like, yo, let's do another band. So, it was some of the members from Third Degree and Eric Cooper. And Punishment started playing in February of 2000. And by, I want to say, September, October, Shattered Realm was playing. And we linked up pretty early. Obviously, we're all friends. And I think by the winter, Chris Collins, who was the original singer of the band, stopped singing. And they re, they had the demo, but they got things together. Um, Joe Nunn had not been active with Second to None as much then. And so Second to None wasn't active. And Joe jumped up on second guitar, or guitar rather. Chris Rafalowicz, who was playing guitar, became the singer who everyone's known for with the Spoken Ties, uh, Broken Ties, Spoken Lies record. He became the singer. And um, 
you know, the band played a lot. And Eric, because he was at every fucking show, was integral in that and like linking up like before the social media, he was the social media. He was at every fucking show from Massachusetts to Long Island to Richmond. And he did a lot of fucking pounding the street to get that band out there. And then they happened to be around at a time when them shows in 2001 too, where the Chrome was big. So they were getting big. They opened up a show. They played with until the end and shit. And John Wiley like checked them out and we were talking about it. And they signed with Alvaran records, which is a European label. And, Eulogy distributed the record here as a Eulogy recording. But technically, they were an Alboran band that was on Eulogy in America. And so, in 2001, we were all supposed to tour together. And for whatever reason, Shattered Realm and Punishment didn't tour together. So then in 2002, we were supposed to tour together. And again, we didn't tour together. And um, the third time we tried was Shattered Realm and Punishment in 2003. And it was supposed to be Shattered Realm, Punishment, and Ringworm. And Shattered Realm didn't do it. And at the end of the summer, Punishment's van caught on fire in the North Bay area. Like, you know, Santa Rosa or somewhere out there. And I was like, all right, I guess, you know, this sucks. And my girlfriend at the time uh, drove from Philadelphia with the drummer of Punishment at the time's mother's vehicle with a friend of mine named Matt Dempsey who just got his first degree as a 10th Planet Black Belt. He runs Ventura uh, 10th Planet. Check him out. Matt Dempsey has all played bass and horror show and was also in my short-lived band, The Crossbearer. Matt Dempsey and our friend Josh Shirley, who passed away, who was a guitar player for Crossbear, but more importantly, a guitar player for Victory Strike and Horror Show. Those guys drove out to pick up me and my friend Stoney, who's also dead. How fucked up is that? Ethan, the drummer punishment, he's dead. Stoney's dead, and Josh is dead. So it's kind of fucked up. That's the way life is in these stupid stories. But um, we came home, and I was like, dude, me and my dad have our own jobs, and we also have work. Me and my girlfriend are back together. Life is good. And Joe's like, yo, do you want to play Europe? Which is like, after we did so many U.S. tours, that was one of the last places I wanted to play. I'm like, fuck, I got to do Europe. But I didn't. I always get back with my girl. You know, life was good. So I'm like, nah, man, I can't do that. So Shattered Realm asked Paul Brown to play in the band for the European tour, which was like September 2003. So Paul Brown played in the band from September until Hellfest 2004. In 2004, I went on the last full U.S. tour with Punishment. It was Punishment and Blacklist. It was Blacklist's first U.S. tour. And then um, Joe hit me up. Hey, Paul doesn't want to be in the band. you want to join now? And I talk more about this on the Neanderthal Society podcast. I go way deeper on that episode, so check that out. But simply, I decided to join Shadow Realm because I want to continue to tour, and the idea of playing Europe was fantastic. So... I was in the band from 2004. We were really active from 2004 to 2008. Um, Inter-band bullshit, me having criminal charges. A lot of shit, a lot of shit shifted socially. And occasionally we would play, you know, I think we played in 09, maybe one show in 09. And then me being on house arrest and such, there was a disconnect 
And then in 2010, or maybe it was 2011, it was either 10 or 11, Shattered Realm played with Chris on vocals at the East Coast Tsunami. And um, that was the first time that Chris had played a show with them at the time for like seven or eight years. And Chris was in that Supper of the Living band. He sang on our second record. He sang on the song Her Justice. And he was a supporter of the band and a friend, even though he was not playing in the band. Chris Collins, who the first singer of the band, he would be Shattered Realm's tour manager on the last big U.S. tour that we did in 2005. And um, at some point, Shattered Realm had played some shows. Connecticut, they did that Summer of Hate Fest. They played like one other show in New York. And then there is a lot of turmoil and beef with specific members of Shattered Realm, like Joe Nunn. So people don't want Shattered Realm to play, or they don't want to see Joe Nunn play. And I was okay with not doing Shattered Realm. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. Touring Europe was fantastic. Um, But, you know, I have a life, you know, had kids that I was trying to be a part in their life. Um, I had a girl move from California. We would eventually get married. But at that time, you know, just had a girl move out here, trying to make things happen, some Bon Jovi shit, whoa, 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 we're halfway there, that gimmick. And, you know, you can't do that and be on playing shows three times a month. And so it didn't really bother me to not be in Shattered Rome. And until Bob Wilson had asked me to play a benefit show for Jake Abbott, whose father had passed away, who he's a plays in payback. I I never thought about doing Shadow Realm, and I said I can't play a Shadow Realm. It just wouldn't be right. So it was me, Louis Aponte, Robert Goodspeed, Anthony Marinaro, and we did it as all will suffer in this basement of a Delaware County church. Fun show, good times. That he got the he needed money for his funeral. You know, Shadow Realm played a million benefits, but the members of Shadow Realm. Did not like that. Chris Rafalowicz, Paul Brown, Joe Nunn, all had negative things to say about the band. And, you know, this ain't Madison Square Garden. I wasn't thinking like, oh, we're going to go ahead and kill it. But at the same time, dude, don't tell me what to fucking do. Um, Joe Nunn joined the band. There were songs that were attributed to him. He may have tightened them up or made them better at some point, but... Fat Pat, Danny Cahill, who's passed away, um, Al, Chris, Chris, Eric Cooper, this bass player, Austin. There's a, uh, there's a lot of hands in these songs well before, you know, it's not just a couple guys in a band. And so, you know, when I look at the timeline of Shadow Realm, I joined to play from July 2004, steady through... And then, you know, we would play sporadically up until 2009. So I was in the band for five years. I did more U.S. tours than any of the other guys had sang on. I did more European tours than I sang on. I did not sing on or write any lyrics to Broken Ties, Spoken Lies. Never said that I did. I, and so that's like, it's not a thing like, oh, Joe says he did. I, obviously, I didn't sing on that record. Chris's style is very guttural and... Anyone can sit there and do that slow death growl. I don't. When I'm on stage, I'm super hyper. I couldn't be calm enough 
to do the gargle death vocals. His vocals were hard as shit. I liked that band then. I still like the band and those songs that I weren't attached to. I love performing them. But the interesting aspect is that there are people who try to look at history and say, like, oh, he wasn't even a big part of the band, or he wasn't an original member. By the time that I was asked to join Shattered Realm in September of 2003, there was no single original member left. Al, who played drums, Chris, who sang, were the last original members of the band, and they stopped playing. So for the entire duration, the biggest stretch of the band, remember the band started in late 2000, from 2003 onward, mid-2003 onward, the entire band wasn't full of original people. And that's just really what it is. So you wouldn't have an argument, oh, you know, there's not even the original members, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, Joe Nunn came in, and he added what Joe Nunn does to the things. The argument that I'll say is, you know, if anything, when we did the second record, The Den and Blocks, we were going for a completely different vibe. Um... A great example is like those guys play with this band from a second story window and they had like these whack ass high singing points. I was like dating like heavy shit and then like la 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 singing parts. I thought shit was whack. I thought the song Her Justice was, I mean, not Her Justice, the April Situation song was whack and it was them trying to like get an audience with that whack ass crowd. And I never liked that song. I never performed that song live once. Um, by the time we were writing in 2005, hardcore changed precipitously, and that style finally got big enough that it was like not going to be something that Shattered Realm would be attached to. So there was a harder, hardcore, kind of heavier sound, fast and aggressive, hard breakdowns, and that was more akin to stuff that I wanted to do, and it worked out well. Um, personally, I do not give a fuck what's written about me on the internet, but the other thing is that this band now, in this iteration, if we're going to be honest here, has been active and playing almost as long as the band Shattered Realm was initially like really active. If we're ever getting serious here, which is like the time between 2004 to 2009, okay? And I don't think that that's understood, if that makes any sense. Like, it's really not understood. Like, we played as All Will Suffer in February of 2017. or Yeah, February 2017. So, in a couple months, that'll be five years ago. So, the same stretch of time that I was active and we were doing, like, you know, tons of U.S. tours and tons of European tours and playing East Coast up and down. The same timeline, I have been playing with Tony O., and random people. And it sounds so fucked up. Like wow it's that quick it's been five years. The original lineup wasn't even a band for five years. This lineup that I was in for five years. And now I'm in another lineup. That we changed because. You know I don't think we want to write a record of Shadow Realm. We may. I don't fucking know. But I don't like reading. On the internet like. That I don't have a right to be in the band. It's kind of corny and stupid. So every once in a while someone says. Hey do you guys want to do Shadow Realm? In the case with the Terror Zone podcast, dude, guy was great, asked us to play. We linked up with MH, Tony O took it from there, next thing you know we're playing this weekend. Uh, I'll play Tsunami, I'll play fucking, 
we did a cool This Is Hardcore. It was weird to play, but it was fun. And we're playing Keystone. We might play some more shit. But Shout Out Rome to me is a fun thing to do. And anyone who doesn't like that I'm singing in it can suck my ass. Next question. Which is interesting enough to say that we will now talk about this. What do you think about doing a punishment reunion? Very funny. Because we're talking about it. You know, we got to get some things together. Um, there's bigger plans out there. Talk about it a little bit elsewhere. But yeah, the idea of doing punishment is something that I think about. It will never be something that goes on tour. But it would be good to get the boys back together again. And I think we have the possibility to do it. Next question. Where were you raised? I was born in a hospital called St. Mary's, which is at Frankfurt Avenue. Not too far from the Kung Fu Necktie, which was just Fishtown. Now it's very hipster. And um, my parents are close. Were grew up in all over Kensington. Um, well, I lived as a ch- baby up on Lehigh Avenue. And often I lived really close to Lehigh Avenue all through my 20s and early 30s. Um, my mother had an aunt and uncle who lived in Frankfurt. So my father and mother eventually moved up to Frankfurt. So my, I've pretty much lived from Bridge and Pratt, Frankfurt Terminal, all the way up to Huntington L Station in my early first eight years. And then I basically lived in Frankfurt from the time I was about five. We lived in Frankfurt in mad different houses. Yeah, I'd say like from one to five, we lived in a couple different places. And then from four or five, I think we lived in Frankfurt from the time I was, yeah, until I went back to, in 1998, I moved back to Kensington. And I kind of, I've always lived either in Kensington or Frankfurt. And um, different parts of Frankfurt. Frankfurt's a big-ass neighborhood. And so I lived, you know, near Simpson Playground and near Franklin Boys Club. I lived near West Park. Um, wild times, wild streets. Hung out with nerdy headbangers. Played street hockey. Played wiffle ball. Played hardball. Broke my nose for the first time. At Bridge Street in Frankfurt, where the cemeteries are, where now the Walgreens stands, some kid hit the ball, cracked me in the face. You know, um, Shrimp City kid, wall ball, played chink, played step ball. Later on, we all went down South Street, found Dungeon Dragons, found Hacky Sacks. It's good times. Thank you for the uh, personal question. Um, this is such a weird one. I don't even know how to answer it because it's just a kind of. Like one of these just like random things that happens. It says, uh, what about any crew on crew beef? And the thing about crew on crew beef is that the crews are a part of hardcore culture in a way that there's not really a um, structure at times. So these kind of groups form in different iterations or different reasons in different places. And... For me specifically, I don't even, uh, I would probably never talk about something like that on the show unless it was like old, old, old stuff. But for those listening, like, cruise on cruise shit 
it's not really a thing. In fact, in the last 10 years, it's been very chilled out. Uh, nothing like the late 80s, early 90s. The only crew on crew stuff is like the few Nazi gangs that like act like hardcore crews. They're the only time they get people get fucked up. That's crew on crew shit. So all the other stuff doesn't really happen. In fact, hardcore crews are still a, a part of things in many parts of the country. But, you know, some of these people are the stalwart, you know, generational holders of the area and keepers of the the true history you know with all these cities being full of transplants of people that move in it's guys in the crews who you know grew up in hardcore that stay together that kind of keep some of the old past together that's my take on it but now I, I wouldn't talk about crew and crew beef on here specifically um here's a funny one sketchiest club to ever play um right up there is New England, and I don't know if it's Club One Two One, which was like, yeah, pretty fucked up. Like I don't, you know, like we went up there with the Swaria, and it was like, all right, these are a different kind of people. I mean, right up there was a uh, St Andrews Hall in Detroit was pretty fucking out of control. The first time we went there, like you know, I talked about it on the Juice episode. Um. Met Cafe in Rhode Island was a different kind of fucking sketchy. Uh, going up to the tune-in in Connecticut was pretty fucked. Irvington at the Cricket Club was just a mad hood place where, like, someone ordered a pizza and the, the street kids robbed the pizza guy who pulled up to the show. Wild-ass shit. Um, here's one from Hard Carl. Let's relive 1986. Will you make a GBH and AF show possible? Woo, let's get into this real quick. Roger from Agnostic Front is in remission from cancer. And God willing, through GoFundMe, he was able to go ahead and he was received a lot of money. But that's the godfather of New York hardcore. And God willing, he will fully recover and return to the stage. And that's not going to happen until 2022 at the earliest. And... When I think of stuff like Roger Murray and Eddie Leeway, who we talked about and we had on the show talking about cancer, it's kind of hard to me to think the people that I grew up just thinking about, you know, obviously every year hardcore guys pass away. I mean, there are so many different people that pass. Um, real quick mention that Mike Madrid from Against the Wall from California, he was in a bunch of bands, but the band that I fucked with from him was Enzo. He died of cancer, you know, like... Hardcore first and second and third generation people have been dying a lot recently, and it's sad. So hopefully, yeah, I'd love to get them. I'd love to do that show just so while people still are around that love Agnostic Front and GBH, we get to do that again. Uh, here's a great one, Nick. What will what can we do to make hardcore bigger? I don't know. It depends on what you wanna. Depends on what you wanna say is bigger. Um, the internet has obviously stretched out the overall size of hardcore and allow more people to get into it, a.k.a. why there's not a real gatekeeping scenario. Like, if you're able to Google hardcore punk and buy records and T-shirts and go on eBay and buy shit, that's not a fucking gate. So stop saying fucking gatekeeping. I don't really know if it needs to be bigger. I don't really know what the benefit of hardcore being bigger would be. Um, I... I don't want it smaller. I kind of want it... Can we get it more pure? Can we get hardcore more pure? 
Like, you know, you know, hats off to knock loose and the younger generation, you know, of bands who are continuing to bring people into the fold. But honestly, if the fan bases of the bands who are just outside the wall of hardcore sound-wise are just bringing in people who throw up the horns and kind of immediately denigrate and disrespect the culture of hardcore punk, then I don't have time for it. Like, cool, you want to buy a t-shirt or buy a record or buy a ticket for a show, go for it. But, like, dude, if you're not fucking with Tied Down, Negative Approach... Even up on a cerebral level that you understand its importance, even though you're banned. That's the thing is, I played in Shadow Realm. We weren't no fucking negative approach band. I played in fucking Punishment. We weren't a negative approach band, but we knew what the fuck we were talking about. And we knew what the fuck we were from, and we knew what our culture was about. That's what I want to make bigger. I'm not talking about going back to everywhere, like, you know, everyone going out and looking at a picture on the internet and going ahead and trying to recreate a whole sound and a whole 1980s generic look. But just respect the fucking culture. Respect the fucking people. You know, Jimmy G, God willing, he lives forever. Vinny Stigma, God willing, he lives forever. While these people are out there, that's what I want to see get bigger. The respect. And it's not like bow to a fucking king. It's just bow in respect to the entire generations of people who made this what it is to when you showed up you know for me it's fucking crazy like my my now i've been in hardcore long a long time you know like as the timeline gets on it's like well i got in you know the early 90s so you know it's 40 years i got in you know i'm not even at the halfway point so to speak but I still, I still respect all that shit. I love what it, I love what it is. You know, like I was blown away when I was on the phone one time with Lee Ving from Fear, knowing that he's from Port Richmond. It's a dude from our neighborhood. Ended up being not only Mr. Body and Clue, and was in that sick ass movie Streets of Fire. But oh yeah, what? He's in Fear. Get the fuck out of here. Like let's just give respect. If we're gonna make something bigger, it's getting young kids who do not care sonically. Like and and the reason why is I don't give a fuck. I don't I don't put on the bad brains all the time. I don't listen to Black Flag all the time, but I know my war. I know the basics. I know the records that I like. I know what I fuck with. You know, to me, Bad Brands doesn't really do it for me. Uniform Choice does. Uh, I love the Dead Boys. I like the Sex Pistols. Love DK. You know, love UK subs. Love the Blitz. I love all this old English shit. You know, love tons of different shit. That's all old school stuff. But listen to the bands I listen to. Listen to the bands we played on this fucking show. Look at some of the people we've had on the show. It's not about removing the new sounds and like being like, oh, Turnstile sounds like this, so fuck them. No. But, you know, hardcore at its core has different values, have different approach. And if the people that are coming into to listen to a handful of bands, hey, cool, great. Great to see that those bands get to commercially get supported by you guys, but if you don't give a fuck about some of the other stuff, you're never really fully in. You're just like a passerbyer, you know, like a buffet style. Like, I like this, but I don't like that. So that's my, I'm sorry, did not really answer the way you like it, but that's how I feel. Ha, Drew, tattooer, or not, I read his name, Dylan, the tattooer from Cadillac. 
which is now going to be called Hard Times. Big shout out to Mike Barletti, who's in Please Die. He's also the owner of Hard Times Tattoo, formerly Catalyst Deuce. Our boy Dylan hits me with, want to hear about Young Joe and his first bands. Yeah, and it was, which ties into another question from actually Ron Kaiser, who was in my first band. Um, now, I was in a band as a kid just jamming on stuff. And my mom's boyfriend kind of put me on to get my first bass. And Ron, or Ron Dog, as he formerly called, now he's a black metal king. I don't want to call him Ron Dog and have his metal friends laugh at him. But Ron was the man. Ron looked cool as fuck. Ron Dog, that was my boy from their 90s, <laughs> Roxborough King. And um, he moved out to North Philly, and we linked up to be in a band... And he had two guys from his neighborhood that didn't know anything about hardcore or punk. And we started this band. And my brother, Vex, who is a rock and roll singer, Starscream podcaster, and owner of a roofing company, was like our fake manager and like would help us with stuff. He got our band in shape enough to play a show with his band, The Broken. Um, all Northeast, North Philly kind of stuff that was going on. I'm going to do a whole podcast I got a buddy cram fucked me. We were supposed to get together. He never hit me back. Fuck you, buddy. Fuck you, buddy. Supposed to get a podcast together with that. We talk about like all the weird no neighborhood shit that no one in the world but us will talk about. But Vex was the dude who kind of like pushed us and kind of taught us how to be in a band. I refuse to say the name of the band, but need to say we were not good at all. Fucking sucked. And um, we play. The show at this church, sure gets uh, in like the northeast, like Castor Gardens. Whole show gets destroyed. It's fucking glorious. Um, it was us, the Broken, and which is like their band that they still kind of have. Now they're just called Starscream, but it's all the same dudes. And fucking um, this goth band that we always played with. <laughs> Shit got crazy. And then um, we were at a show at the Friends. And I was talking to the dude, Mike, basically like, oh, we can get more people. Because there was tons of of people at our shows, like in the neighborhoods. Because like Mark Fisher had Intoxicated. And um, the boys had U.S. Expulsion. And all these like punk bands were from our neighborhood. So we were like, uh, Lime Cell was from our neighborhood, which used to be the arresting officers. And, you know, like we talked about a little bit with Carl Picara, who Carl Picara was talking about the pizzazz, by the way, in that episode. It wasn't. He was talking about pizzazz, but he knew it meant the fucking, um, the, the Y, the Frankfurt Y. And like my boy Slave, who was in Freight Train, he was a band called Threshold. There was a bunch of bands all from our neighborhood, and we're going to get into a whole nother episode. I don't want to go too deep. But anyway, we were like the not a good band, but everyone's like, oh, Joe's mildly annoying at 15, but cool. So we get to jump on some shows, and then we eventually were putting our bands together and selling tickets at the schools to play at the Friends, which is like, around the corner from the chalk off of Cherry Street on 11th Street. And that lasted for about a year and a half, and then we destroyed the place. Literally destroyed the fucking ben- the venue, which is another thing that happened a lot back then. And um, the last show that we played was a show with Dysphoria. And it was supposed to be Dysphoria, Furia 5, and someone else. And it ended up being our band and Dysphoria. And I told them, like, oh, this is our last time we're playing. And it was the last time that band played. And then I tried to do a band with my dead friend, Carmen. And we had members and they just kept bailing out. And then um, I helped Freight Train write some lyrics. There's a whole other 
story I'm not going to talk about unless B- Buddy brings it up on the show. And then I did Punishment. So that's my early band thing. Big shout out to Ron Dog. Just my, my brother still all these years. Love you. And uh, may I love to Dylan just for looking at it and asking. It's kind of cool to see his name up there. Uh, just so you know, like, Chris Collins is a fucking man. Chris Collins is a part of this gang of dudes that write. And, and there's, a, there's a gal or two that write every week, too. But the people that write in uh, every week and talk about episodes, Chris Collins is one of them. Chris Collins hits me with a bunch of stuff, like, uh, basically asked me a shit ton of stuff, like, who else would be on the show? So he's got some good ones, like, will we ever do a podcast with Disciple or Shockwave? Disciple from Erie, also dudes from Shockwave, Dan Quiggle, Dave Quiggle, Dave Quiggle's an insane artist, Dan Quiggle's is a family man. Those are my fucking boys, would love to have them on the show. Uh, JR from Next Step Up would love to have them on the fucking show. Would love to have them on the fucking show. I mean, yeah, Chris, I, I gotta get some shit together. Um, real quick question. Um, where's it at? I just lost it. Oh, um, first hardcore band to blow your mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, the like the first one to blow my mind. I don't know if it was the we got a no video. Chromags was it listening to this tape that this guy Robert who went to college with my mother gave to us and I'm um, listening to Agnostic Front and being like what the fuck is this you know like I'm not really sure exactly in the fold which comes which but it was kind of all those things at once I mean uh, yeah so I wish I did that better alright here's from Ace Richmond's King up and coming Master of booking, still wasn't that amazing bad. Mutually assured, mutually assured destruction. Check them motherfuckers out. Um, largest pros and cons you've encountered in the mass return of shows. The largest pros and cons, starting with the pros. The pros have been that people bought a lot of tickets. The pros have been that people have come from all over just to reconnect with the culture. Um, for those of you who cried about Thompson Square Park, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Like I said in the video, you don't want to come to shows, stay the fuck home. But don't tell people who want to come what to do. Especially if you don't know them. It's just this like internet posturing that's stupid. You know, I don't smoke cigarettes. I think they smell like shit. I think you look stupid smoking them. But I'm 41 years old. I'm not going to grit a whole song or be something dumb about it. It just looks dumb. Stupid. You know, but you don't see me telling people on the internet, like, you're fucking dumb. You could die from cancer. Look at your teeth. Like, you know, like, I don't get involved in all that shit. Let people make the decisions they make and let it affect them the way that they'll affect them. You know, like, do what that will. You know? Um, The positives were that for a time, it felt like everybody was set to play the game and move forward. Um, The cons specifically have now been stuff like, oh, you know, some people having a lack of confidence in the safety, getting a little nervous, now trying to push shows back. You know, um, the VAC card requirement specifically for me doesn't check all the boxes. It's a insurance indemnification legally. But look at these fucking VAC cards. It's like someone's penned name with some gibberish. 
Now, what I got to do to, to like really verify that I would need to go, okay, where did you get this back card from digitally? I want to see which place gave you the back card. I would need to see like, Hey, what's your ID so I can match your name to the name on the card. Like to really validate a Vax card, if we're going to get fucking hard and serious, it's a lot more than just flashing it. And ultimately we know a couple things. We know the unvaccinated are most likely to be harmed because of any kind of COVID infection. Um, and so for me, if you're unvaxxed, you should just be wearing a mask to protect yourself. Un- unabashedly being unmasked and being like, fuck it, that's also your choice. But I don't really go down that road, so to speak. If now with it being in practice at the knock loose show, I told everybody the same thing. The VAC card in your pocket doesn't stop all these dirty ass cooties that people have during the show. Wear a mask. Even the VAC people should wear a mask. If you don't like that, don't wear it. I, 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 I'm not, I mean, there's a, you know, I don't, I don't like to be on the fucking train with everybody else. I don't like to, you know, you heard all these other fucking talking points. Yes, people should work out more. People should fucking eat better. People should work to fight against heart disease and, you know, all these different health-related issues from bad American diets, the cheap access to fast food versus the importance and instruction on eating whole foods. All these things are very valid and important. I don't want to be fucking John Josephs and Joe Rogan and talk about it. You hear about it enough. But really, your health is paramount. And I don't think that the VAC card does anything besides indemnify and protect legally the venues that are allowing to do shows. So that itself is important because if we do not have places that are able to do these motherfucking shows, what the fuck are we going to do? What the fuck are we going to do if these places close down? So if they need to have a fucking VAC card requirement so shows continue, buck the fuck up and just fucking do it, right? Buck the fuck up and go for it. And just fucking do it. That's what I like. I don't. I don't know what to tell you. Um, come see me at a show if you're unvaccinated, and we can have a conversation, a true conversation, no screaming and arguing. I, I don't do that. But um, yeah, the cons have been people losing the important thing that if we do not support shows as they are happening, they can go away again. And it's like an engine. You started it up, it stopped, it failed. Now we get it back rolling again. We need to keep the and we need to keep it going because the idea that something in eight months is going to be safer, I don't fucking see it. I don't see something coming to go ahead and make a whole world of difference. I don't think we're in a different scenario now that we're in a situation with different variants and different worlds of ideas and different parts of the country having different philosophies has been the one of the most important things about America is that culturally regionally different ideas form so um the pros have been that shows are happening and that hardcore is starting to come back physically in people's lives the con is that everyone's still arguing on the internet the con is that some people are getting scared about the internet so they choose to play or they're being irresponsible or maybe they're irresponsible but then they find out they have COVID, so they want to be responsible and they back off i don't know how it works either way Bands, if you book your shows, stay with it. Keep keep the keep the spirit alive. All right, here's another one from Young Ben Stucky. Best show experience 
either playing or booking. The best show experience playing. Sometimes I think it's just playing This Is Hardcore. It was cool to see how it felt. Um, other times I think about all the different times that we've played Benefits and the presence of people together in a room to bring financial support to people is one of the most culturally important things that hardcore people do, right? How many benefit shows have you been to? I, I love playing them. I play benefit shows, I think, more than anything. I'll say no to a lot of shit. Benefit shows, it's really hard for me to say no to. Um, though, then you go and you play in Sofia, Bulgaria, and you play um, an, already like a 50-minute Shattered Realm set. And then you have to do all the songs again because kids are crying and they still want to see the show. It's fun. I'm not crying like babies, like, oh my God, this is amazing. Do it again. And you know, playing like an hour and 40 minutes and then the, all the fans hug you and it's very emotional. Some pretty deep shit from people that love hardcore. Big shout out to The Last Hope from Bulgaria. Um, worst show experience. Playing in Punishment, we played a lot of weird places. One time we booked a show, I booked a show in Albuquerque, New Mexico from Book Your Own Fucking Life. When we showed up, they fed us. They were very nice to their house. When we go over to the show, I was already kind of a little nervous, like how big could Albuquerque be? And next thing you know, we're bringing gear in. And the guy said, hey, man, just let you know, I, we really didn't flyer this. And there's no other band's plans. But me and my man can't, hear, can't wait to see you guys play. We turned around, put all the gear back in the van, and went the fuck home. That's what we did. We didn't go home. We went on to the next show. That was the worst. Um, booking experiences. I mean, one time I had to book a show because Dan Stoney, one of my best friends, died in a car accident. And we pulled together horror show, blacklisted. We pulled together Little League and One Dead, Three Wounded to play at the First Unitarian Church in 2005. Um, all my friends were there, and it was an amazing, heart-wrenching moment in Philadelphia hardcore. And I had to give Grace Stone, Matt's, um, Danny's mother, money in a large brown bag. And I hugged her. She made me cry. And emotionally, it fucked me up to say, like, the best thing that we can offer the sealer side of the coin with benefit shows is like, this is all I can do for you. I can give you this thousands of dollars so you can pay for his funeral. Can't bring him back. Everybody went to the beef and beer that was happening that night, and I had to go home. I like I, some of my friends from Boston came down to support the beef and beer, and they heard that I wasn't coming, and they went to my mom's house, and we just watched videos and laughed. And it was so bittersweet because I wanted to be with everybody else. But, like, you know, like, I felt helpless. I felt helpless. I felt like this is this is the guy who we went on that tour with. You know, the summer, uh, two summers before, we took him on a U.S. tour. It was one of the smartest, purestly, pure, purest, funnest person ever. Funniest dude. Um, could be friends with anybody. Um... It, there are so many Stony stories. <laughs> I just love them. You know, I love them. And um, all I could do is give his mom a, a brown paper bag full of thousands of dollars to say, I love you. I loved your son. 
And this is all we can do. And that's one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Um, anytime I do a show for a young band and they get a great reaction is a heartwarming thing. And every time we do a show like Keystone Jam, everybody goes, oh my God, the lineup's sick. I can't wait. It's fun, man. It's fun to, that's like a reward, risk reward. I like being, it's nice to know that the work and time and the thought and the gamble of making it happen, all the pieces pulled together. Go ahead, and next thing you know, we have a fucking a hardcore show, and people around the country want to fly to it. That's rewarding. I like that. Um, yeah. Let's go to another question. How do I keep a positive attitude with everything going on in the world? I happen to say things like, fuck you, fuck this, but so... What do we do? Do we just turn the other way? Do we go, oh, it's not possible? Like, I, yeah, I, I fucking literally was going to climb a fucking bridge and jump it off of it in 2014. And the second time I thought I was going to do that was like about six weeks later and I called a suicide hotline and eventually went to therapy. And I am depressive as fuck. I have inactive moments where I'm so overcome with either depression and bouts of anxiety that I can't even fold my fucking clothes. I'm like a fucking idiot. And there's moments where I call, God bless Bob Wilson. God bless Hart Carl, Max Morton, Mike Hooligan. Um, a friend of mine posted on the internet that when you're stressed, sometimes people suffer in silence and don't reach out because they had to cope with stress. And stressful times by themselves. They don't know how to reach out. And so. In trying to combat these things. And be proactive. I tried to learn how to find the perspective. That allows me to get up and still go. I'm not shooting at 100% here. Um, if I'm honest with the podcast listeners. That are still here listening to this fucking 52 question thing. When I don't have an episode. It fucking kills me. Because I, I want to do this every week. I want to be here every week. These solo missions have been fun, but I've got to get a better system to where when I get a guest, we're not having technical difficulties or their schedule allows us to do the full three or four hours that we get in out of some of these. Um, but also, like, when we do one, i got to record it. Now, I've thought about some other things like taking the first 50 episodes and making sure they sound good enough and go back and then get them all up on YouTube so the listeners, sh- the listeners grow, but... I just want to keep coming out every week and then maybe touch on some back stuff. And so, like, when I fail or I don't produce, it fucking makes me nuts. And, like, I shut down. It fucking hurts. Like, I want this to be awesome. I want people to enjoy it. People do enjoy it. And then the adverse effect is, like, hey, dude, what happened to the podcast? And it's, like, dude, I'm sorry. Like, I feel bad. I feel so fucking bad. And I'm working to correct it. And so a lot of the things that I do to stay positive is just look for the you know, either look for where I couldn't have made something better or just realize you still have to push through. And that's a big part of what I do. I look for, well, I still got to do this. So I say things like, well, no matter what, I still got to pour concrete tomorrow. Or, well, if the sun's still going to rise and you have to meet the day, you know, and there's just things to like remind yourself, like there's another day because I've been there climb, trying to climb a fucking bridge to jump off. So I didn't have to face the day and I don't ever want to go back. All right, here's a some fun ones again with the jujitsu shit. Um, you, hard Carl, Drew, jujitsu till death. 
Who wins? Drew. Drew is stronger than me by far. I was in a four and a half minute battle with his right arm on Wednesday night. Um, I kept top position nearly the entire roll after his failed takedown got me in that top position. But he's built like an actual fucking brown bear. And he's lost a shit ton of weight, but he's so goddamn strong. So many years of knocking people the fuck out at shows and being an amazing tattooer. I just either suck a technique or I haven't figured out the point of where something would bridge to, to tap, but I just I can't get his arm. But I, I attack it. Relentlessly attack it. So I think in a death scenario where he wouldn't have to play by IBJJF rules, he'd probably break my fingers or put a thumb in my eye immediately and I'd be dead. Hard Carl's a, a KG motherfucker. Probably bite a face off. But again, I don't see him doing anything to Drew that Drew won't just weather the storm and fucking kill Carl. So I think uh, I think Drew Rash of Glenside Tattoos will kill us both. Legit kill us both. My favorite submission is either the arm lock, the straight-ass old G arm lock, or a variation of an arm bar. Whether it's a, like, you know... Um, you know, your traditional, like, across-the-body arm or, you know, like, sometimes from full, full you know, full guard. Um, yeah, I attack arms a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, it makes sense. Um, including, like, the head and arm choke. I, every once in a while, I'll get a triangle. Um, but, yeah, arms are, arms are easy targets, and I suck at jiu-jitsu, so that's where I rock out. Favorite old-school hardcore band. Um, sometimes it's Warzone. I just love the song, but a lot of times it's Agnostic Front and Leeway and Chromags and Negative Approach and the business, if you want to go that route, you know, like depending on where you go, the Blitz, um, new school bands, Mind Force, Mind Force, Mind Force, Mind Force, though fuck Jay for not playing Keystone Jam, you fucking punk, but you better bring your wife and daughter because I love you guys. Um, yeah, that's... New school, I would say that those guys are up in that top parent pantheon. Trying to find one that isn't something sort of redundant. Um, here's a cool one. What bands would you wish you made a full length? See, I don't think that a full length is always a band's best material. And if you look at some of the bands that are most celebrated, it's the demo, it's the 7-inch. And that kind of goes back to all this stuff that's going on today where like this band ideas like well you know once we have our next record this is what's really going to do it it's like no bitch working getting on the road playing shows expanding who sees you not who's on the fucking internet hitting like and buying a t-shirt on big cartel who the fuck is representing a pit who the fuck is seeing you when you come through their town that's going to build a fucking band hate proved that all at war proved that you know like hate played fucking everywhere all at war played and you know I don't know. There's just so many bands that win, just like win on the presence alone, that a new record is less important than writing songs and engaging the fans at the face level at a show that I think matters more. Some of the most celebrated hardcore bands had a 7-inch, but I really do miss the era of demo tape, maybe a split 7-inch, then a 7-inch, maybe the CD EP, and then a record. But like, Really, how many sick of it all records do you really fuck with? 
How many AF records do you really fuck with? Especially in the post-2000 and, say, 5 era, who fucks with every, like, hardcore record from a band who already has six LPs out? You know, um, some of the best shit is the first shit, if that makes any sense. And so, it's fucked up, but that's what the fuck it is, you know? Which is so bizarre because in heavy metal, I think as the band gets more progressively in tune to either a progression of sound or what they're comfortable with, like a band like Carcass or At The Gates, I feel like later records are so fucking phenomenally more, have more depth because the nature of what hardcore punk is, I really don't know, man, but I think like 15 to 23 is like the most creative window of a hardcore band. Now, there are some exceptions. I'm biased. But it's also real. Wisdom and Chains has one of the best discographies in hardcore. They have a record that just pl- any record you put on, unless you're a full ass bitch, you can listen to the record front to back on a ride in your car. I I mean, um, actually, you know what, dude? You know what? Oh, side side mission here. Shout out to Pennywise. Just we're having like four or five sick. Opening bangers. I don't. I, I don't listen to actually the Zoli record with Pennywise was pretty sick. <laughs> Way sicker than his Ocean Heights John, which, again, Ignite has a new singer and shit that are gonna drop. It's gonna be pretty fucking sick. Carcass has a new record that drops today. Can't fucking wait. Um, that got off on a tangent, but yeah, I mean, LPs not really important to me as much as what a fucking band puts out. You know, sometimes a band 7-inch is the best shit because they don't have to write some filler bullshit. You know what I mean? You don't have to write some filler bullshit? Fine. <laughs> Record's still going to slap. Oh, here's um, here's some more shit from Chris I just found on the one page. Uh, will you ever have a Brothers Keeper reunion? I don't know if Mike Ski would do it. I mean, it'd be kind of cool, but I don't know if Mike Ski would do it. Also, yes, Chris, I would love to have JR from Next Step Up on the show. Um... If you uh, a good buddy wrote, Joe, can we hear about your family and the ups and downs we all experience? I would say to hear that, go to the Neanderthal Society podcast episode four and check that shit the fuck out. That's probably where you're gonna hear it the best from me, direct. Um, yeah. Um, here's one. What did you do to learn how to get better at putting on shows? Well, at first it was easy. We all got together and put our bands on shows. We sold tickets. We played. The first time I did a show that like was mine, which is why I always date like my first shows to March of two thousand, uh, March of nineteen ninety seven, was that I did a show at the Union Union Street Hall. No known band was on it that you guys would know, but it was like a big local show. But that was the beginning. As soon after, I was doing Burial Ground, One for One, Mushmouth, Coming Correct. A lot of bands come through. And we did 25 to Life, Overthrow, um, a lot of local bands, too. And that was really the start of it. And, like, you know, a, le- a year later, we were doing Alt War, Buried Alive. Alt War never showed up. Buried Alive did when they had a demo. Um, and then what I learned was that there's, like, this thing called math where you have to know how much the rent of the venue is, what do you spend on sound, and then you have to like think like, okay, well, fuck. If I'm, you know, at the time it's like two fifty, and maybe a hundred and fifty to rent a PA from Wild Studios up near the CFCF. 
So you're looking at $400 when the show was 5 or $10. You know, um, a $10 show, you know, then was like, ooh, you better have somebody good. You don't have 40 people, you're not making your money, you know? And you got to figure out if you had guarantees, now you got to add that money. So by the time I got to the point where in June of 98, I did Bad Luck 13, All Out War, Death Threats first out of Connecticut show down here. Um, John Cooper from Clever Lang singing for Clever Lang for the very first time. Um, Jarrett Wiener, BJJ fucking legend. And uh reason why I started jujitsu a couple years ago in his first band with our friend Max Moya, who just passed away, or not just passed away, the anniversary of his death just passed. Their band, which would eventually be called Frontline, um, their first show. I knew how much 25 to life, all at war, death threat, all needed. I knew how much the venue would cost. So I knew, okay, I need X amount of money to break even. And I started figuring it out. But like, you kind of remember, there wasn't the internet, but there was zines. And there was like, book your own fucking life. And if you read, dude, one of the coolest things about zines was just like the how-to. The DIY culture died because people can't even fucking Google yeah, I said fucking really loud and it popped in your ear. You know, how the fuck did we lose this information? How the fuck did we lose shit that you could learn in a fucking zine? It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It's fucking stupid. You find out how much money that you need to bare minimum break even. That doesn't mean the water and the markers and the flyers. That just means how much money do you have to pay to other people? That was like the old school version of like breaking even. You know, and then, you know, we could take it to 102 with like, okay, well then, you know, you got to think about how much you have to promote for, how much of this, and you get into all these different structured deals, the 85-15 with the, you know, there's a, it goes further and further. But I learned by asking questions, looking at what other people did, and talk to my friends who did shows. And I improved, little by little, incrementally, and... Again, go to the Neanderthal Society if you want to hear this shit. Because I, I went kind of I went deeper with that, I think, than anywhere else. Um, you just listen to me talk for roughly an hour and forty minutes. And I hope that this QA makes up because I really can't wait to get back to a shit ton of interviews. I love you. Thank you for supporting everything. Keep hardcore shows going. Keep remembering to think not only for yourself and we think for yourself man it means believe what i'm believing right now that could be some conspiracy shit just take a time and have empathy for people take time to say hey i may not agree with you but i'm gonna allow you to have your opinion because your opinion will not come into the middle of the night and steal everything out of my house i love you guys thank you for listening and peace